You're back with The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. Let's talk about grief. I would have done anything for a few hours where I didn't have to think or even dream. But my thoughts kept returning to the terrible truth I'd learned in the hospital that day and all the unthinkable moments and tasks that were still ahead. For some, grief tightens the chest, clenches the jaw, churns the stomach. It can sit unmoving on our shoulders, a quilt stitched from trauma, or roll across us in waves that crash against our consciousness before receding to a hidden place. Finally, I got up and wandered over to the bookcase in my living room. There sat works of literature I discovered at Wesleyan, classics that dazzled me with their melodies and prose. Love Poems by Nikki Giovanni, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. They were required reading for my college courses, but I continued to reread them on my own. They'd always given me so much joy. Now, in the midst of my terror, I turn to them again. My name is Bozma St. John, and I'm the author of The Urgent Life, my story of love, loss, and survival. Bozema stopped by to talk with us about grief, something many of us on Team Takeaway are facing. Some of us have suffered the recent loss of loved ones, like my beloved Auntie Iris, who we lost earlier this year. Some of us have carried grief much longer, like our senior producer, Shanta Covington, who's marking the 15th year of losing her father, Emmett. And all of us are grieving the loss of the takeaway itself as we prepare to air our final episode on June 2nd. We look to Bozema's journey for insight. Isn't that just so beautiful? I mean, that, that is what I think is so miraculous about us humans. You know, that, that we don't have to be born in the same place. We don't have to believe in the same politics. We don't have to share the same religion, gender, any of the things. That there is some connectivity that if you were just curious enough and vulnerable enough, by the way, because it's not just about being curious about somebody else's story, but vulnerable enough to tell your own. And not the highlights, <laughs> you know, like all of the stuff that maybe feels like, oh, this doesn't make me sound like a hero or a shiny, you know, that um, we have a greater chance of connecting to each other. I'm thinking in this moment of this kind of stunning little piece I, I actually read um, by your friend and colleague, um, Adam Platzner, who talked oh. about discovering you through your Facebook page. At a time when you were writing in real time, a lot of what you write about in the book, mm, um, mm, the mm. loss of, of your husband, his illness, and then his death. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that just made me so really, really emotional, by the way. You know, before then, I wasn't the person really who shared a lot of personal information on social media. I think I was like pretty much everybody else on the planet who felt like social media maybe was the ill of a society, you know, and like people go and get lost there and they fight and they have little battles and, you know, what's the use? And I don't know really, to be very honest with you, what inspired me to go on, at first it was Twitter, 
you know, just with the question, like I'd woken up in the morning and felt real trepidation. Like there was a pit in my stomach. I almost felt like there was no one to talk to, you know, just a question out in the world that just said simply like, I woke up feeling uneasy. Does anyone feel the way that same way? Something like that. What a, what a question to pose letting people know I was uneasy, you know, and I, and to be honest with you, I don't know again, why that, why I was inspired to do that, but I got a response from somebody who said, yeah, I feel the same way. <laughs> and I was like, you do, you know, it is, it felt like a gift that maybe I wasn't so alone. Maybe I wasn't, you know, losing my mind. Maybe other people felt the way I felt regardless of what they were going through, that we were feeling the same thing. Like all of us, Bozema is more than the sum of her experiences of grief and loss. In fact, she's a rather extraordinary person. She's recognized as one of the most influential marketing executives in the world and has navigated the highest ranks of some of the world's largest corporations, including Netflix, Uber, Apple, Pepsi, and more. And she's done so with such authenticity that her business career has become the subject of a Harvard Business School case study and a Harvard class aptly titled The Anatomy of a Badass. At the real center of it, that's what I do. I tell stories. You know, I tell stories of sometimes products. I tell stories of people. I tell stories of culture. I tell stories of relevant things. I tell stories of history, regardless of you know, whether it's a soda or if it's a streaming app or if it's a ride sharing company or at this point, even Ghana, uh, <laughs> at the center of it, it's about storytelling. I wondered if Bozuma found it easier to tell the stories of others than to share her own. You know, that's such a fascinating question because um, I have always felt in my corporate career that my own story was so important to the work. And so in telling the story of the product or the culture situation, whatever the thing was, I put myself in the storytelling. You know, I think that um, a lot of times in business, people feel the need to be objective or play to the middle, right? Sometimes, I mean, I hate to sound, you know, like I'm gonna offend somebody, but sometimes in business, you play to the lowest common denominator. You know, so that, quote unquote, everyone understands the point. But that's actually not great for human communication. <laughs> you know, we like, we like stories. We like stories where we understand something that connects us to the storyteller. You know, that um, I find that the biggest compliment right now, even as I've written my book and as I have you know, sometimes run into people who are like, oh, my gosh, I loved it when you did X, Y, and Z for this company. It is usually because they identify something about it that speaks to them. And that's the beautiful thing is that it speaks to me too. Hmm. You know, so I think that for me, the success I have found in my marketing career has, beca has been because I value my own story and I believe that it is connected to the greater human story. And therefore, I'm able to put myself in the center of the story while connecting all of us together. Now, Bozema has had to find a way through crushing grief more than once. She lost her husband, Peter, to cancer in 2013. And years before that, she endured the death by suicide of her college boyfriend, Ben. I know that it was 
not a healthy relationship. I recognize now the pains of his mental health and mental illness. Uh, I recognize the the role that depression pr- played in my own life and perhaps what even aided in me feeling responsible for his death. You know, and um, lots of therapy has helped me with that for sure. But um, when we were in college, he was just so bright. You know, he's an artist, a poet, a, a rapper. Imagine a white boy rapper from Geneva, Lord help us. <laughs> <laughs> Even at the time, he knew how, how, <laughs> how impossible that dream was. Um, but I felt that if I loved him harder, mm-hmm. if I supported him better, if I was more open to his dreams and took them more seriously, perhaps he would still be alive. You know, that maybe he wouldn't have taken his life by jumping off a bridge. And I have struggled over the 20 years with the thought that regardless of what I could have done, that he would have made that choice anyway. You know, that it was up to him to see the beauty in his life or to see the beauty in his death, you know, and make that choice for himself. And it's a very difficult thing to accept and understand and feel guiltless. You know, and I don't know if I if I ever will feel guiltless, to be honest, but I am still grateful for having known him and for what the experience of the relationship with him and even his death, what it taught me. And then there was the death of her first daughter, Eve. You know, at the time when I found out I was pregnant with Eve, I'd been married to Peter for almost five years. I was in a great job at PepsiCo, doing really well. Um, So was he. And we're living in Manhattan. Like, we were just, life was good. You know, there's nobody who would look at us and say, oh, you guys aren't ready for kids. (laughs) Everybody thought we should have kids. I think my mom probably called me the night before and was like, don't you want to have a baby? I'm like, mom, (laughs) calm down. You know, but um, when I got pregnant, I was scared. I, I felt like being pregnant and having a baby would slow down my career, that it would change my relationship with Peter, that it would just disrupt my life in a way that I wasn't ready for. And um, in that, I was resentful of my pregnancy. And um, it's important to note that because as I went along my pregnancy, as I got to become more acclimated with the idea of becoming a mother, as I learned to love this child that was inside of my body, also came the challenges of my health. Also came my ignorance in maternal mortality. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't able to ask the right questions. I didn't have the right doctor. I didn't know that there were dangers in pregnancy because nobody talked about it. It felt as if if you had gone through a miscarriage or you had a stillbirth or something else happened in your pregnancy, people shushed it. You know, they swept it under the carpet as if it was shame, as if you did it. And so I didn't know. So by the time I was about six and a half months pregnant and I was diagnosed with preeclampsia, I felt shame. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I felt like, well, why, I, I, why can't I do it? 
What's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? Was it because I didn't want her at first? Mm. Was it because I didn't take care of myself? What did I do wrong? And so by the time I was induced into labor, I was fighting with every breath, every fiber of my body to remain pregnant for love of her, for the guilt I felt, for the challenges I knew would come if she didn't survive, for the shame of it all, I fought. And when she was born and didn't survive, all of those things came crashing on me. We're going to pause and come right back with more from Bozema St. John. Each election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended. No matter how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves, their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions. How to read a Politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with more of our conversation with Bozema St. John and the stories she tells in her book, The Urgent Life, My Story of Love, Loss, and Survival. She shared with us the complicated love story that she had with her husband, Peter, and what losing him to cancer has taught her about living. Life is so complicated, isn't it? Wouldn't it be so much easier if they just gave you a handbook and told you exactly what to do? at crossroads, you know, or um, especially when you've made a decision and then you look back and you're just like, ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, at the, at the time when Peter's cancer was called terminal, I was, I felt, this is going to sound so ridiculous to say, but I felt pretty good about where we were. You know, that um, we had finally reached a, a place of friendship, real friendship, and we had been friends in our marriage for sure, but with our separation and some of the challenges that we had faced together and the loss of our daughter and blaming each other and all of the things, we had become enemies. You know, and then when we separated, it was hard to find our balance, him wanting to fix our marriage, me wanting to run away from it. And so we had finally reached a place where there was peace. You know, it just felt like, okay, we're, we're doing okay. We're friends. And he was fighting his cancer. My mother was also in her battle, but it just felt like, okay, you know, like, look, we're, we're going to get through this. And then when his cancer was deemed terminal, all I could think of like was, oh, wasted so much time. You know, it had been three years since we'd been separated. And I started to think like, oh, couldn't I, couldn't, couldn't we have done something differently? You know, couldn't I have been a better wife to him, a better lover to him? And then I wouldn't have wasted the time because now the oncologist was saying we had a few weeks. And now I had to pack in all of this time that I wish I hadn't wasted into two weeks or three weeks or God help us four weeks. Mm. You know, and um, it's such a thief, that idea of regret. It's a thief. It, it, it steals the present joy. You know, and even at that moment, I, I really had to consider whether or not I was going to beat myself up 
over the things I had done wrong and the time that we had wasted, or whether or not I was going to appreciate the moment we were in. And thankfully, Peter didn't allow me to stew too long. <laughs> in his own brilliance, you know, he created a list, which I hate lists. I wrote about that in the book. I really, really yes. hate to do lists. But he had a list. And the list, it was such a blessing. It was because we would write down or he wrote down the things he wanted to accomplish, right? And it wasn't like, you know, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. It was, it was simpler things, you know? Well, not really simple. I mean, look, we had to like get our will together. You know, he had to, well, we went and ate some gelato, speaking of ice cream, <laughs> you know, all kinds of things like that. But I felt like maybe I could cheat death by continuing to add things to the bottom of the list so that we were never done. You know, but it forced me also into the present so that I didn't have to spend so much time regretting what we hadn't done, that I could look at the list and say, okay, okay, what are we going to do today? You know, because every day was different. Every day, something else was wrong with him. He was unable to do some other thing. Mm -hmm. And so it felt like, oh, you got to take advantage of this brilliant day. As soon as our eyes opened, it was like, okay, what are we going to do? You know, and that is such a gift. It's been a gift to me since his passing that I don't wake up in the morning and throw it away, even if it's a rest day. You know, mm -hmm. like I don't think rest is, is a throwaway. I'm intentional in my rest. You know, if I have a day where I don't have anything on the calendar, oh, yeah, I'm going to throw on those sweats, those socks. I'm going to sit on my couch. I'm going to feel the cushions under my butt <laughs> and, and feel good laying there. You know, it's like it's such a gift to be able to look at life in the present and not have the grief and the regret steal the possible joy that we have right now. Even through the trauma and the incredible losses, I am so grateful to have met the people I met. I'm so grateful for Ben's life. I'm grateful for Eve's life. I'm grateful for Peter's life, even though they are not here now, that I am a better person for having experienced them, you know, for having had relationship with them. And so even in the loss, I am grateful for the universe bringing them into my you know, that's, that's, I'm, I'm, I don't even know how better to articulate it, you know, and I, and it does come with tears, you know, because I'm grateful for their presence. I wish that they were still here. I really do. But even in the case that they're not, I am so grateful for the opportunity to have had them. And through it all, you came to understand the urgent life. Mm -hmm. As we wrap, can you tell me? I feel like I, I, I feel you saying it, but I just want to give it as a takeaway. What does it mean to have an urgency in your living? Oh, gosh, life is really so beautiful. You know, it really is. It's, um, it's such a gift. And I don't think that until maybe, maybe for some, but for me, for sure, I'll make it super personal, which is that um, it wasn't until I, I really went through these griefs to understand how beautiful this life is, what a gift it is to have it. And I don't want to waste any of it. You know, in the epithet of my book, um, I quote Diane Ackerman, who's another one of my favorite authors. And I'll paraphrase, or, or maybe I'll, I think I've now memorized it. <laughs> she says, um, I don't want to get to the end of my life and just have lived the length of it. 
I want to have lived the width of it. And I think that's just a powerful way to look at life that I am urgent about it, not because I want to live it fast, but because I want to get everything out of it. You know, in, in today, I want to live in a way that makes me feel satisfied with it. So that should I go at a time that feels untimely or when I am 106, that I will look at my life and feel that I lived it urgently because I did the things I wanted to do at the time that it was available to do it. And that's what I wish for all of us, for everyone, that we live our life with urgency and that we're satisfied. Bozema St. John, author of The Urgent Life. Thank you for being here and for sharing with us. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to have this conversation and I hope it continues. Thank you.